So that's uh, that's the, the one exciting thing is Seth is here. Uh, the other thing is uh, the fact that we have Corey uh, Pledgy and his wife Meg and her, and his three of four children are here today. I think they all went back to Children's Church. Uh, but um, if you were here at Sunday School, you heard Corey uh, present the new church plant that's in Kinston, uh, which is sort of a plant from the Goldsboro Canvas Church. Uh, they are in Kinston. They're called Collective Church. Uh, and uh, I was very impressed with, with the presentation he gave of, of their plan and, and, and what they've done so far and what's to come. Uh, and um, so uh, uh, we, we are very much about church planting. We were, many, many years ago, a church plant uh, from the same group that's helping Corey, uh, the, uh, now called the Church Planters of Eastern North Carolina. It used to be the um, Eastern North Carolina Christian Men's Fellowship. Uh, but uh, we were one of their first plants, and uh, since then we've always had a heart, a special place in our heart for church plants. And so we've we've helped the Canvas Church uh, some uh, get going, and we want to also be there for the Kinston Church as well because it's just right down the road. Um, and uh, we're very happy to have Corey with us today to present a message from God's Word. So this time I'll turn it over to Corey. All right. Well, hey, good morning, Stony Brook Christian Church. I uh, hope you guys are having a good Sunday morning. It's such an honor to be here today. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Corey Pelleggi, uh, and I'm the lead pastor and the lead planter for a brand new church coming to Kinston called Collective Church. Uh, and just by a show of hands, how many of you here this morning know anything about Kinston, North Carolina? A couple of you guys. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Uh, most of you have probably heard of Kinston before. It's about an hour away from here. And most of you probably know that Kinston has a little bit of a, a rough reputation. It's kind of known for crime and for poverty. Uh, in fact, one time when I was preaching at a church a little bit closer to Kinston, I asked them the question. I said, hey, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Kinston? Uh, and we had this older lady in the crowd. She just yelled out. She yelled, murder. Uh, <laughs> So that tells you all you need to know about Kinston. Uh, but me and my family were really excited to be planting a church there. And a little bit about my family, we have a picture to show you guys. Uh, they are here today, they're back in the kids' space. Uh, but you'll see in this picture, you'll see my beautiful wife, Megan. Uh, she is incredible, she is my better half, she's the glue that keeps our family together. She is a former Marine, so she is really, really tough. Uh, she's enjoying the stay-at-home mom life right now. She's homeschooling one of our kids, and she has an eight-month-old that's always attached to her hip. And I think she would say that she's probably more busy now than she's ever been at any time in her life. Uh, but you'll also see in this picture, uh, we have four kids. We have two kids that we've adopted through foster care. Uh, so me and my wife, we've been foster parents for about seven years uh, in North Carolina and in Virginia. We've helped about a dozen kids. Uh, we've adopted two kids out of foster care in that time. And so in this picture, uh, you'll see our 11-year-old daughter, Lily. Uh, this is actually a picture from her adoption celebration. So we adopted her into our family. We had this big celebration. We invited friends over. We rented this, like, bouncy house with a slide. It had a big pool at the bottom of it. Uh, and we've been talking to her for weeks about what it meant to follow Jesus and what baptism was. And so really cool. At her adoption party where we celebrated her being adopted into our family, we were able to baptize her and celebrate her being adopted into God's family as well. So it's a really cool moment for our family. 
You also see in that picture, uh, you'll see our six-year-old daughter, Sayla. She is just like her mom. She's a little spitfire. Uh, you'll see our three-year-old, Nia, and then our eight-month-old, Luca. And so we have four kids, and life is crazy, uh, but we wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, so what I want to do with our time together this morning is really just answer a question that we've been getting nonstop ever since we announced that we're planting a church. And that question is, why? Why are you planting a church? Why are you planting this church in Kinston, North Carolina, out of all places? Why are you, as a 31-year-old husband and father with a family to provide for, why are you taking this massive risk to plant a church? Why are you going to church after church raising support? Why are you building a launch team? Why are you renting out the movie theater in Kinston to do your Sunday services? Why are you buying all this equipment and a truck and a trailer that you have to set up week after week after week? Why are you guys doing all these outreach events to love on the city of Kinston? Why are you planting this church? And it's a great question. In fact, at Collective, we have a couple of values that we live by, and our very first value at Collective is the phrase, start with why. And there's a great book with the same title written by Simon Sinek, and in that book he talks about how most of the time we can answer the question, you know, what we do, and we can answer the question like how we do it, but he makes the argument that the hardest question to answer is why do you do what you do? And in that book, he also talks about how your why is so important because your why motivates you when things get hard, when life is difficult, when you get knocked down and you have to pick yourself back up. Your why is the thing that motivates you. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of answer that question for myself personally. Why do I feel called to be the lead pastor of Collective Church? And I want to tie that into scripture and tie it into our big picture why at Collective. And so for me personally, uh, growing up in middle school and in high school, I was not a Christian. I was not following Jesus. I didn't care anything about the things of God. And in middle school and high school, I really had no clue who I was yet. I was still trying to figure it out. I didn't have any answers for the questions in life. And so all throughout middle school and high school, I kind of wore this mask, just being what everyone else wanted me to be, or at least what I thought everyone else wanted me to be, what I thought success was. And I'd love to say that I define success as, you know, having a 4.0 GPA and doing all these extracurricular activities so I could get into a good college and being a good kid. But unfortunately, that's not how I define success. I looked at the world around me and I said, okay, if I'm going to be accepted, then I've got to party, I've got to drink, I've got to do drugs, I've got to chase girls, I've got to do all these really dumb things that I'm not proud of today. And that's the mask that I wore all throughout middle school and high school. By the time I graduated high school, I still had no clue who I was. I didn't apply to a single college. I barely graduated from high school. I had a terrible GTA, or a GPA. I had no vision for my life whatsoever. And I can be honest with you, 19-year-old Corey, I took a job doing steel construction because I thought the money was pretty decent for a 19-year-old kid. But 19-year-old Corey, I felt like a fraud. I felt like people didn't know who the real me was. But I also felt confused because I didn't know who the real me was. I felt ashamed because I knew the way that I was living was wrong. I was angry because it seemed like other people had figured out life, but I was still trying to figure out life. 
I was hopeless. And at 19 years old, I hit rock bottom. And I had the darkest moment in my life. And I lost the will to live. And if it wasn't for a couple of people who really, really cared about me, that pulled me through that dark moment, I wouldn't be here today. But I can also say in the darkest moment of my life, that's where I found hope. Because that's where I met Jesus. So when people ask me, why do you want to plant this church in Kinston? Because I know there's people in Kinston that feel that exact same way that I felt. I still remember what it feels like to feel hopeless. And there's thousands of people in Kinston that feel the same way. But I also want to go to Scripture this morning and kind of look at what Scripture can teach us about finding hope when we feel hopeless. And so this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to flip them open to Mark chapter 5. And a little bit of context for the story that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a story, and it introduces us to two characters at the beginning, this local synagogue leader named Jairus, and this guy named Jairus, he has this daughter who is dying. And when I read scripture, I always like to try to put myself in the shoes of the people in the story, and so if I'm Jairus, I can just imagine how this guy is feeling, right? I have daughters, his daughter is dying, and he knows that Jesus is in the same area, and that Jesus has the ability to heal people. And so Jairus does what any good father would do. He seeks out Jesus. He comes running up to Jesus. If I was Jairus, I'd be like throwing myself at Jesus' feet. Like, Jesus, please, you have to come to my house. You have to heal my daughter. She's dying. And that's what he does. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. He's like, Jesus, please. And that's where we're going to pick up the story, starting in verse 24. And this is what it says. It says, Jesus went with him, and all the people followed crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. I want to pause there for a second, because I think this woman is a perfect picture of the culture that we live in today. In fact, I have some statistics that I want to share with you guys this morning. And man, these numbers, they're staggering. All these numbers just come from last year alone, from 2022. So last year, 50 million Americans admitted to suffering from some kind of a mental health issue. 20 million Americans admitted to having feelings of depression, struggling to get up every day. 19 million people admitted to being addicted to some kind of a harmful substance, chasing after hope and not being able to find it. 12 million people felt so hopeless that they had serious thoughts of suicide. This is another crazy one. Half a million reported, I bet this number was even higher, but there was half a million reports of sexual assault last year. It left people feeling broken and hopeless. And here's the crazy thing. In one year alone, $300 billion, not million, billion dollars was spent on mental health care. So if anybody can relate to the woman in this story, it's the people in our culture today. 
spending their money trying to find hope, nothing can provide it. But I want to keep reading. In verse 27, this is really the key verse. This is what it says. It says, she had heard about Jesus. And I want to pause there again for a second. Because you have to understand, this woman, with the condition that she had, she would have been a complete outcast. Right? Nobody would have wanted anything to do with her. If they would have touched her, they would have been deemed unclean. Like, she would have been an outcast in her culture. She was hopeless. She was broken. She was searching for hope. And in verse 27, it tells us, somebody told her about Jesus. Right? Somebody had to tell her about Jesus. It doesn't say who it was, but somebody had to tell her. She had to hear about Jesus from someone. So somebody told her about Jesus. In her darkest moment, searching for hope, somebody told her about Jesus. And so the question I want to ask all of us this morning is, are we helping the hopeless find hope in Jesus? Are we being that person that's telling people who might be an outcast in our culture, who might not be accepted, are we telling them about Jesus? I want to keep reading the story, and it goes on to say this. So this woman, it says, she, come, she came up behind Jesus through the crowd and touched his robe. But she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she'd been healed of this terrible condition. Jesus realized that once that the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. I want to pause there for a second. Once again, I want to try to put us into this situation to kind of imagine what's going on here, right? You probably have Jairus. He's probably freaking out, like, come on, Jesus, we got to go. Let's get there as quickly as we can. Come on, Jesus, my daughter is dying. And then you have this crowd of people that obviously sees what's going on. And this is the kind of thing that piques our interest, right? These are the kind of movies that we like to watch on TV. Like, what's going to happen here? Here's this father who loves his daughter so much. What's going to happen? Let's go along and see what Jesus does. Let's see if there's a good ending to the story. So there's this crowd that's pushing all around them, and there's this chaos as they're rushing to get to his house. And in the middle of all this chaos, Jesus just stops. He just stops, and he goes, who touched me? And his disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Do you see all these people? Like, are you just being a germaphobe? Are you telling us to back up? Like, what are you talking about? Who touched you? Look at this crowd around us. But Jesus stops everything. He goes, who touched me? Who touched me? Because you have to understand, this woman, she was trying to just sneak in and get what she needed and sneak back out. She wasn't expecting anybody to care about her, to have a relationship with her. She's like, let me just get in and let me get what I need and let me sneak back out and nobody will ever know that I was even there. But Jesus doesn't let her do that. Right? He stops everything. He stops everything until this woman presents herself. And you see what he calls her? 
I think with one word, he paints a very vivid picture for her of how he feels about her. Because he calls her daughter, right? Like saying, look at this scene going on around us. You see this father who cares for his daughter. You see all these people that want to see what's going to happen in this situation. You see the love and the care that is here for this father and for this daughter. He calls her daughter, letting her know, that's how I feel about you. That's how I care about you. I don't want you to just sneak in to try to touch my robe and, and then leave. I want you to know that I care about you, that I love you. Because Jesus loves hopeless people. It's the whole reason that he came, was to bring hope to the hopeless. So he shows this woman love. What's interesting is in those final verses, it talks about how she was frightened. And she goes from feeling frightened to finding that her suffering is over. So my question is, as churches, how do we help people take that same journey? How do we help people go from feeling frightened to finding that their suffering is over? So I think if we're going to be honest, there's a lot of people in our world today that are frightened or scared to go to church. They feel like, oh, I'll just be judged if I go to church. I'm not welcome at church. They don't want me there. I don't feel like they'll be accepted or loved or cared for. So the question is, how do we get people to go from feeling frightened to finding that their suffering is over? Now, I think there's three things that we can do. The first thing that we can do is find grace. Right? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and the gospel is the greatest news for a hopeless world, that we were separated from a loving relationship with God, the one thing that we were created for, we could never restore that relationship on our own, but Jesus came and he provided hope and he provided a way for that relationship to be restored by dying on a cross and suffering for our sins and raising again three days later so that we could have that relationship with God, the one thing that we were created for, the one thing that's going to fulfill us and give us purpose in life. So if you're not a Christian, you can find grace because of the gospel. But if you are a Christian, I think sometimes, too, we need to be reminded of grace. That we exist on this earth as Christians to share the gospel and to love people who might think different than us and believe different than us and vote different than us so we can show them grace and love. So the first thing we can do is find grace. The second thing that we can do, we need to be intentional. Right? Once again, if I'm to put myself in Jairus' position in this story, I would be freaking out when Jesus stops. Right? Like, I'm sitting here thinking about my problem, thinking about my daughter, and she's dying. I'm like, Jesus, why are you stopping? Let's go. What are you talking about? Who cares about that lady? My daughter is dying. Let's go. But I think we forget sometimes that, yes, we have problems, and Jesus cares about our problems, and he cares about them deeply. But there's a world around us as well. There's people in our neighborhoods, at our places of work, where we live, where we play, that are suffering and have problems, and they need Jesus too. So we have to be intentional about not just focusing on ourselves and our own problems, but be intentional about focusing outward and doing the third thing that we can do, which is seeing people. I think sometimes as Christians, we all slip into this where 
instead of seeing people that God has created, we see enemies, right? We see people who believe this certain thing or vote this certain way or do this or do that. And instead of seeing people who need hope, who need Jesus, we see enemies. We see arguments to be won, people to be put down, people to bash. We don't see people that God has created, that Jesus came and died for. So we have to be very intentional about seeing people, to ask God to give us his eyes to love and care for people, for hopeless people the same way that he does. You see, at Collective Church, that's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a church for the single mothers who wake up every single day wondering if they're going to be enough to provide for their kids, wondering if anybody cares about them. We want to be a church for 19-year-old Corys who are struggling through life, trying to figure out the meaning of life, feeling hopeless. We want to be a church for the addicts who wake up every day and so desperately want to be set free from the things that are holding them back, but they just can't seem to be set free. They can't find that freedom. We want to be a church for the girls who've walked through sexual abuse, who wake up every single day feeling broken and shattered in a shell of their former selves. We want to be a church that brings the hope of Jesus to a hopeless and dark world. But the truth is we can't do it alone. It's the whole reason why we named the church Collective Church. It's all about a group of Christians coming together in order to help people discover who Jesus is. And so there's definitely a couple of practical ways that you guys can help us out at Collective. We can't do it alone. And so, first of all, if you know anybody who lives in Kinston, man, come talk to me after service. We have a booth set up in the lobby. I have some business cards that I can give you. If you know anyone who lives in Kinston who want to help us get this church started, come have a conversation with me. I'd love to talk to you about that and make that connection. We need people to go alongside of us to plant this church. Second thing that you can do is you can pray for us. We need so much prayer as we attempt to plant this church in Kinston. And the easiest way for you to do that is you can sign up for our newsletter. Every month I send out a, a newsletter with updates for what we're doing with the church, and then I give some prayer requests, things that you can be praying for for the church. And so if you're interested in signing up for that newsletter, I have a sheet right out there in the lobby that you can sign up for. And I'll make sure you get those emails so you can be praying for us every single month because we need your prayers. And then the third and final thing that you can do, we need financial support as well. Uh, the gospel is a free gift for all, uh, but unfortunately, planting a church is not free. Uh, there's still a lot of things. We have to buy our truck and our trailer and all the sound equipment and everything that we're going to do to set up Sunday services and the movie theater in Kinston. And so we need financial support as well. And as you look around this morning at Stony Brook Christian Church, the best thing about this church is that you guys are here. You have this building, you have people, you have the ability to be a light in your community today. We don't have any of that yet. We have a couple of people, we have some stuff, we're still building our launch team, and so we need help and we need support. And so however you can come alongside of us and support us, man, we would appreciate that more than you will ever know. Well, let's find grace, let's be intentional, and let's see people so we can help hopeless people find hope in Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you that when we were your enemies, you chose to love us. You chose to provide a way for us to be reconciled to you. Jesus, that you came, you lived a perfect life, and then you suffered and died on a cross for us to give us hope. Help us to never forget that. Give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to go out into our communities and to love people, to care for people the way that you care for people to see people the way you see people. We thank you that you love us the way that you do. Empower us to love others that same way. I pray a blessing over this church, over Stony Brook Christian Church, that you would empower the people in this church to go out into the city of Wilson and to love people and to help them find hope in Jesus, the only true hope in this dark world that we live in. So we love you, and we praise you, and we do all this for your glory. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.